How's everybody tonight? So good. <laughs> good. All right, we're going to jump into Isaiah chapter 2. As we do so, keep in mind when we did our overview, first six chapters of Isaiah form uh, a concept of the whole book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah basically discussing something maybe we've all wondered. <clears throat> there are, we're going to see a picture tonight. Of what Israel is going to be like one day. And last week and later on, we're going to see a picture of what Israel is like right now. And the question is, how does this Israel become that one? Now, if we take that concept into our own life, Scripture declares that when we come to Christ, He has made us a new creation. So I understand the concept of the new me. And I see the old me, and I want to know the same thing. How, does, how do I now become the me I should be in Christ? And the answer is the same. So that's what makes Isaiah such a, an interesting book for us to go through. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see it too. I mean, well, ultimately, guys, the answer is going to be on Isaiah 53, right? When we see the picture of, of Jesus Christ... Um, washing his people clean so as we work our way through we want to be able to see this pattern i guess for lack of a better term being laid out for us how does this israel uh become that israel so tonight we're going to talk about uh at least in the first four verses the destiny of israel Where, what, what's israel going to be like okay we'll, we'll refer back to chapter one a little bit that's where israel is now eh, you know in, in essence, broken like we are, right? So the brokenness is not something new or something somehow better for them. And what leads to their brokenness that we'll see tonight that hopefully we can point out is their self-sufficiency. And when we consider that concept, their self-sufficiency, that's probably going to be our premium struggle. I can solve this myself. I can take care of this. I can use my own wisdom, knowledge, understanding to kind of dig these things out. So let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. See anything interesting there? I saw the word. This is the word he saw. The Hebrew word is hazah. Hazah is a... The word that is most often used of a vision, a dream. The idea is that the, the unity of the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, that are all based on Isaiah's vision, what Isaiah saw, what Isaiah understood for the nation of Israel. That unity come together is, is not just something that he heard. It wasn't just something that he read. It was something he saw. Ezekiel does some interesting things with this concept. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. We've heard that phrase before, right? We might even have used it before. You know, I was over at Walmart and, uh, I don't know, the word of the Lord came to me. I had this feeling, this unction. No, you guys know what I mean? The only difference is Ezekiel said, the word of the Lord came to me and he touched me. Oh, 
that's a little different, isn't it? That seems to be bringing a whole new concept to what's going on. So along those lines, I think you have Isaiah discussing the same kind of thing. Amos, in Amos 1.1, said a similar thing. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, uh, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Well, that's where Isaiah is at, right? Isaiah is during Uzziah, right? In the, in the year that uh, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That's Isaiah chapter 6. So Amos says the same thing. The words of Amos, the prophet, he's delivering to us the things he saw. The things he saw. So, so often when we come to the prophets, there's more there than what meets the eye, right? The, the concept that at, at the very least he saw a vision. Maybe he saw the word of God. Because we know the Word of God as something more than just words on a page, don't we? Yeah, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Word, the Son. So interesting concepts that we take a look at. He says in verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay, this is a phrase that comes up all the time in the prophets. <coughs> in the latter days. He's talking about the end of days, the the... The, at least at the time of Isaiah, what would be considered far away future. Not, not next week or the week after, but somewhere far away in the last days, toward the end of time, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills. Now when, we, when scripture talks about that, there was an idea in... The world at that time that the gods dwelt where? On high mountains, right? When you go to Greece, to, to the Greeks, where, where, where did the gods live? What mount? You remember? Mount Olympus, right? The high mountains. Uh, people didn't live on the high mountains. So the picture, the concept was this where the gods live. Now what is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying that it will come in the, in the, end of days, in the latter days, at the end of time, that God, most high, Yahweh, his mountain's going to be the highest mountain. What's this? He's the real God. They're going to, everyone's going to know God most high, he is the God, that, the, that this concept, the nation of Israel, the God that the nation of Israel served is going to be the true and only God. It's the idea of saying to the people, man, that this will be known, and not just known in Israel. Look what it says. <laughs> it says that many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. For what? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles are going to say, Hey, let's go up to, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the place of God. Let's go so he can teach us, so he can show us his way, so we can learn from him. It's interesting because this is one of the areas of prophecy where I think you have a concept of already and not yet. Right When Jesus came, he started this, right? So there's a taste of it already occurred the, the day of pentecost the poor the the spirit of god poured out on the church there's a taste of this 
learning his ways and where we should walk and how we should walk. But there's also the reality that it, there's going to be a whole lot more of that, right? In the kingdom. In the kingdom, when Christ returns, a whole lot more of people coming to him because he's the truth. Because he's the way. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So that picture the already and not yet idea. We have the, the fact that God the Word came, presented Himself as Messiah. Isaiah 53 is going to illuminate that to us. Isaiah chapter 6 is going to tell us why we need that. Right? Because we're unclean. We're broken. Our lips are unclean. We can't dwell in the presence of God. So God does something to make us clean. That's Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 53, he builds on that, that concept a little more. The suffering servant who's going to suffer for the sins of many, right? Who's going, to, who's going to be that coal that purges the sin of the people. So we see this picture of already but not yet, but then there's going to be a, a literal kingdom, a real kingdom where there's no more war. And it's interesting because really <clears throat> the key to world peace is, is simple, just nobody wants to do it. The key to world peace is this, submitting your desires to God. Submit your desires to God, there's no more war. But when I don't submit my desires to God, there, James talks about this, doesn't he? Where does war and strife come from among you? Where does it come from? Your desires for things you can't have and you want to attain. So what happens? Brother's been killing brother since Genesis chapter 4, right? This is not a new thing. This, this anxiousness or anxiety within men. In fact, all of these things were discussed in chapter 1. Where Israel is now, chapter 2, 1 through 4, where Israel will be one day. You got the, a picture like the, the, the dual nature of Israel. Jacob, after his own desires, right? The supplanter, the liar, the one who's working out his own schemes. That's chapter 1. What do we see about them in chapter 1? Well, they, st- they do steady war. Right? In fact, he describes it like this in Isaiah 1 verse 7. Your country lies desolate. <clears throat> your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, overthrown. What's that describing? The city in wartime, right? The destruction, the exile that we'll, that we'll see in, uh, in the nation of Israel. That we'll see m- many of the prophets pointing to. What's the other thing we see in chapter 1? This attitude of manipulation. The people of Israel trying to manipulate God to do what they want by doing things for God. Wait, does that sound familiar at all? No? You ever try to manipulate God to get Him to do something for you? If I do this, God, will you do that? Well, here's how they did it. In Isaiah uh, 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? They're coming. They're trying to punch a card and say, hey, if I do these things, God will do this. So he says, bring me no more vain offerings, worthless offerings. Incense, that's a picture of their prayers, is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity, sin, in the solemn assembly. You're coming to manipulate God, but you're not dealing with what needs done. Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. The picture is, I I got my own desires, my own things, my own needs, my own wants, and so that's what's governing me, and I'm going to do whatever I need. I'm going to bring more offerings. Maybe if I I do more stuff, then God's going to give me this. God's going to do this. God's going to grant me favor. And God's charge to them is, why are you coming to me with all these prayers and desires of your own? They're... They're not mine. You don't want me. You're not here because you love me. You're here because you want something. You're not here because you love me. You're not here because you want to know me. Have you not experienced a human relationship that looks like that? You ever had a user in your life? Somebody who had your phone number every time they need something? Nobody but me? Children, for sure. <coughs> and that, that's exactly uh, a little while at least. A, I'd say quite a bit of the picture that God's painting with this idea. They also were filled with injustice, right? But in that kingdom, in the future Israel, there's not going to be any manipulation. What do people want to know? Oh man, we want, let's go see God. Let's go hear what He has to say. Let's go learn His ways. That's different, right, than... Hey, let's, let's figure up a, what kind of offerings we can bring. If we bring enough offerings to God, maybe he'll grant us this. You, you, you kind of get the picture between Israel now and Israel then? And how does that Israel become that Israel? That's kind of the, the picture that Isaiah is going to be painting as we work our way through. Well, they're also full of injustice. In, in Isaiah 1.16, God says, Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove evil. Of your deeds from before my eyes. Stop doing evil. Stop. Verse 17. Learn to do good. How do we learn to do good? Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. What does that imply? None of those things are happening, right? None of those things are happening. There is no justice. There is oppression. Nobody cares for the fatherless or the widow. And then God describes that city again, chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. What's, what is it about a whore? Let me tell you, every time the Bible t- describes uh, Israel as a whore or people as a whore, the point is she is not faithful. What did God say in Hosea chapter 6 that he wants? What does he want from you? God says, I want your faithful love. Remember the story of Hosea, right? 
A prophet, God said, go marry a prostitute, which becomes an illustration of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Why does he say you're, you become a place for whores? Because he's singling out the idea that you're not faithful. You don't want me. You don't love me. What is the Shema? Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God. He is one. And you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Right? You, you, you getting the idea? This is what God's looking for. This is what God's looking for from his people. He says, now, once you were full of righteousness, now you're full of murderers. Your silver's become dross, your wine is mixed with water, your princes are rebels, your companions are thieves. Everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They bring no justice to the fatherless. What's he describing? He's describing the fact that in Jerusalem, in Israel, there is no justice. We have manipulation, we have warfare, we have injustice. And then the last thing that we saw in chapter 1 was the posturing of the mighty, sticking out their chest, puffing up their, their pride, right? For they will be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You will blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. It doesn't take very long for those trees to shrivel up. In fact, he says, the strong will become tender and one spark will light them aflame. So we have this posturing this attitude so the question is that's israel that's the picture of israel in isaiah's day but in the first four verses of chapter two you got a glimpse of israel where everyone knows that god is god and people are coming to see him and and worship him and loving him and you those are two different distinct visions right two distinct things well what is the difference between the two well, the rest of chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 tell us. What's the difference? The difference is if you want peace, you have to understand that God himself is the source of all good. As long as the source of all good is you, your own thoughts, or your own plans, or your own ideals, there will be war. There will be injustice. Why? Because if I can get mine by taking yours... That's what I'll do. That's the nature of mankind. That's not just limited to Israel, is it? Is there anything on the page so far we've talked about we can't say about our own nation? It's only going to get better as we work our way through. It's only going to get better. It's only going to become more evident. So what in verse 5? Isaiah the prophet, he calls out, O house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. That's a choice, right? Come, choose what? To submit to God. To submit your desires to Him and walk in His light. How do I know what's good? I can't tell. I think some things are good, they turn out not to be good. I think other things are bad, they turn out to be good. Can I submit my desires to the Lord and follow His light? I can. You're going to see some things that Jesus taught that are a little different, right? Like love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Yeah? If a man asks for your cloak, what, give him your tunic also? If he tells you, bids you to go with him one mile, go with him two? That's not in our nature, is it? You force me to, to 
hike in the mountains with you for a mile, I'm going to be a bitter companion. I'm not going to be holly jolly and go an extra mile. Nope, when one mile's over, that's it, done. I dropped my pack, I'm done, brother. But the attitude that Christ portrays is substantially different, isn't it, than what's natural in man? How does that Israel become this Israel? How does this happen? So then we're going to take a look back at Israel again. The house of Jacob that has been forsaken. And why has God forsaken Israel? Why is that Israel yet future there outside of our grasp? Why is this one the way it is? And what he's going to say is because Israel, this Israel, chapter 1, is like this because of unfaithfulness. Because this Israel trusts men, not God. This Israel trusts the plans of men. Look what it says in verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and fortune tellers like the Philistines, they strike their hands with children of foreigners. What's he saying? Here Jacob, Israel, is full of the ways of the Gentiles, the wisdom of the Gentiles. Uh, divinations from the, wheat, the, the, the east and, and uh, what did it say, uh, fortune tellers from the west. So you have the east and the west. You have all the wisdom that the world has to offer. Not God's wisdom, but whatever is out there that you can glean and pull in and say, we want to make this a part of what we're doing. They've made all the deals that they could make with all the foreigners. Why did Solomon end up with a thousand wives? Why? Because he trusted God and God said, you know what, Solomon? You should go marry 999 more wives. Is that how it happened? How did it happen? Well, I need to make a deal with this nation. So I'm going to strike hands with the foreigner. But, but the way we make a pact with that nation is how? Well, I'll marry that king's daughter. I need to make peace with this nation. How are you going to do that? I'm going to marry their daughter. I'm going to marry their daughter. Next thing you know, he's got a thousand wives, which is at least 999 too many. <clears throat> what did God's word teach? Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. In other words, God's saying, don't be like everybody else. Don't follow all their ways. Listen to what he says, don't do. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's number one. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless. Don't be like them. You come to me. That's what God's saying. So there should be nobody among you, there should not be anyone... Who burns their children in the fire. 
Well, we've become a lot more civilized today, right? You can't actually watch the burning happen anymore. Once upon a time, you'd go out to the altar, and there they would have the god Molech, and they'd put him in the fire, and he'd glow red hot, and they'd lay their babies on the god Molech and watch him burn. Now we do it in a womb. But it isn't the same stuff. It's exactly the same, just because you can't see it. God says, there should not be anyone among you who does this. There should not be anybody among you who practices the wisdom from the east and the west, who does all the things the other nations do. Why? Because God says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll teach you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm humble. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do you really think God the Father said anything different to Israel? Come to me and I'll teach you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. But don't be unfaithful and start doing all these other things. But that's what they were guilty of. Isaiah 2 verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to the treasure. So Israel was not poor. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. So they had a big army. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. <clears throat> so you have this picture laid out. This Israel that's not that one. This one that doesn't look like that one in the future that has all those blessings. This Israel... They got there because of their self-sufficiency. They're looking for wisdom from everywhere else, but not from God. They're not spending any time in prayer saying, God, reveal to me your wisdom for this. They're figuring out, well, you know, the, the, the Forbes says I should do this, so that must be what I do. After all, the real goal is to have all the silver and gold you can have, right? Because if you do, then the blessing of God must be on you. Isn't that what we think? But God says they're full of silver and gold, but they don't have him. And they have a huge army, but they don't have him. And they have a lot of idols. Listen, there's a lot of ways to look at idolatry. And for the most part, I guess, I want you to see idolatry two ways. One way that there's a real power behind an idol, right? That those idols don't just spring. Men didn't just carve a stick of wood and start worshiping it because there was no power there. You get that? The Bible teaches that. Deuteronomy 32, 18. You can, you can take some time and look that up. There's real power behind the worship of Satan, the worship of idols, the worship of demons. There's real power. <laughs> Those nations would follow them. There was a reason that they would do so. But there's also the idea of worshiping what you've made. Well, you remember when Nebuchadnezzar stood back and looked at Babylon? You remember what he said? Look at this kingdom which I have made. What was God's beef with that? And Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't make that. I did. And so they had a bet. You remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar said, nope, I did. God said, nope, I did. I'll prove it to you. And they let Nebuchadnezzar go crazy for seven years. And he walked around eating grass, acting like an animal. Didn't cut his hair, didn't cut his nails, 
but he was still king. Can you imagine that happening? For seven years. And then God gave the sanity back. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Oh, you're right, God, you did this. Because I was just insane for seven years and it's still here. You get it? But here, the nation of Israel, they've got silver and gold. And they've got a big army and they've got all this stuff they're so proud of. Now, if, that, if these verses do not remind me of the United States of America, you tell me what does. You know a prouder people than the United States? Because I don't know a prouder people. Man, there's a lot of silver and gold. Richest nation out there, I'm pretty sure. Biggest army. But when that was Israel, they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in their stuff. And their ingenuity. And their self-sufficiency. And that's what made Israel that Israel and not that one. Not the vision of Israel when Jesus Christ reigns as king. But the Israel in existence. That's what makes our nation what our nation is today. It's because, yeah, we built all this. We just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're so full of ingenuity and understanding. Look at the kingdom that we have built. I'm not sure God's going to give us seven years of craziness. I don't know. We'll see. But I hope we open up our eyes. Deuteronomy 17 said this. God's command to the people of Israel. He must not acquire many horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses, says the Lord. Uh, Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never go that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. See, the desire for what the world calls security is what led that Israel to bring in the world's gods. To lose her view or vision of the God of the universe. I want what everybody else has. And that I want what everybody else has led to the loss of the only thing that really mattered. So Isaiah, back in Isaiah 2 verse 9, it says, So man is humbled, each one is brought low. And Isaiah proclaims, do not forgive them. How how do we get from that Israel to that one? How do we get these people from here to there? How does that occur? There has to be some, some kind of judgment. There has to be some kind of punishment. Isaiah is saying, you can't just forgive them. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. How are you going to get them from here to there? In verse 10 he says, enter into the rock. And hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. That reminds me of Revelation chapter 6. 6, I'm not sure. I want to say 619, but I'm not sure. But the idea when Jesus returns, what's man going to do? They're going to run into the caves and the rocks. Say, hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. They're hiding from the wrath of the terror of God, from the splendor of His majesty, from the haughty looks of man will be brought low, the lofty pride of men will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted. So everything looks great, right? This nation that we have built, this wealth that we've accumulated, the army that we have, the stuff that we got, this looks great until what? 
until you're standing there with all of that dross and a holy God appears in front of you. And then what happens to you will be what happens every time it happens in the Word of God. Woe is me. Because I'm unclean. That's why Isaiah 6 is so important. Because the first five chapters are laying out for us, we're broke. How do, how do you get those people to become those people? They have an Isaiah 6 moment. That's how you get them there. That's how you get from there to there. From the promise of the kingdom and, and men worshiping God as he ought to. Uh, from the place where we are right now, we have that coming to Jesus moment. We have that time where we stand before an almighty God and we declare myself to be unclean. And we ask God, I can't be here and neither can my nation. We're a mess. Because in that story, the angel goes and takes a coal and touches his lips, right? Your sins are purged. Who took them? Isaiah 53 says a suffering servant did. He bore their transgression. He died for their iniquity. That's how men will be humbled. In verse 12 he says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It will be brought low. Against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains. Against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. Against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish. Against all the beautiful craft. All the haughtiness of man will be humbled. And the lofty pride of men will be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Nobody's going to be proud of their accomplishments that day. I'm never, I'm, the day I stand before God, the day I stand before Him, I am not going to raise a litany of my accomplishments. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. How do you get from them to them? The man has to humble himself. He has to be brought low. He has to be brought to a place where he can acknowledge that the only truly high thing in all the world is God Almighty. It's Him. But we don't often have a vision for that because we're so enamored with our own accomplishments. Look what I've done. Look at the kingdom that I have built. Look at all that I have accomplished. Are we any better than the unfaithful of Israel who gathered wisdom from the four corners of the earth, but not from the Lord? Who made sure that they understood what the, whatever their horoscope said or whatever thing, what, whatever fortune teller would tell them. I need to know whether to you know, plant wheat or corn. Go to the fortune teller. Have your fortune read. What's the one that I need to go with? They didn't seek the Lord. That was Israel. That's what led them to a place of injustice. That's what led them to a place of ripping people off, a place of murder, where when they lifted their hands to God, there was blood on their hands, and God said, don't do that to me. Go wash your hands. Is, is are we any different 
than Israel in Isaiah's time? Are, are we not proud? Do we not boast on our laurels of the power of our own military? I know I do. I was a Marine. That's, they teach you to do that. It's a requirement to graduate, to get out of boot camp. You know, this is... And, and, and I, I don't want to confuse somebody. That doesn't mean I don't love my country. I would say because I love my country, I'm willing to say, we're a country of unclean lips. And I have unclean lips. And I need to be purged by Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Isaiah is getting to in the first five, or through the first five chapters. He's getting to the idea that the high is going to be brought low. That the proud are going to be humbled. That they're going to find victory. They thought victory would be found in doing things the way the world did it. Right? We'll only find victory if we have a king like all other nations. How'd that work out for Israel? Prior to that, Israel was what's called a theocracy. Theocracy means God ruled. They didn't have a king. They had judges. They had prophets. But they wanted to be like everybody else. So they went and got a king who started charging taxes, building armies, building palaces, building places to keep all the horses God said for them not to get. You come with us to Israel, I promise we are going to go to Solomon's stable cities. Solomon had stable cities all around the nation just to keep the horses he got from Egypt. Wait, was that what they were supposed to get? Seems like there was something else they were supposed to do. Is it it the horse that gives you the victory? Is it the palace the size of the wall? What about when Joshua came into the promised land and came up to Jericho, the city with the biggest walls at their date? Well, Joshua, you can't take that city without siege gear. You're going to need horses. You're going to need... You remember they walked there, right? They just walked around that city. Do you remember? Who gave them the victory? Immediately after the victory at Jericho, the children of Israel go to a little town called Ai. And when they were going to Ai, Joshua said, you know what, guys, don't sweat this a little place. We don't need God for this one. And they went out there, and you remember what happened? They got whooped. They got beat. Because there's no such thing as a little thing. God was teaching Israel... To submit her desires to him. And trust him. To be faithful. Right? Don't we, don't we value faithfulness today? We all would like people to be faithful, don't we? Does anybody just love traitors? Or betrayers? There's not too many Judases out there, Right? The idea is we we want faithfulness, but that faithfulness and that faithfulness that we desire is something that God put in us because it's what he wants. Faithfulness from us toward him. Verse 18, 
He says, and the idols will surely or shall utterly pass away. And the people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. Who are they going to give it to? They're going to cast away these things made of silver, these things made of gold. They're going to give them to the moles and the bats. Why? Because they're not going to help them. That's not helping. When they stand before the terror of the Lord. When they stand before the terror of the Lord in that moment. So they're going to enter the caverns of the rocks and the cliffs of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord. From the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? If we are honest, vast majority of the decisions we make, a nation makes, <laughs> Israel made was over fear of man, wasn't it? And what's God say over and over again? Twice in Psalms, we'll take a look at him in just a minute. Why are you afraid of man? What can man do to you? Where does this fear of man come from, but not the fear of God? Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's a stepping off point. Understanding who is, is uh, worthy of our fear. That's not the creepy guy in the dark in that alley. Uh, he's not worthy of your fear. But God is. And when you understand that, that's your step-off point. That's your beginning place. That's where you begin the path of wisdom. You remember what Proverbs describes as the path of wisdom. The Bible teaches us that there are two paths that you can walk. A path of wisdom and the path of the fool. The path of wisdom leads to life. The path of the fool leads to destruction. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's the first sign on the road of wisdom. That God is worthy to be feared. In other words, I should be making decisions based on what pleases the Lord, not what I'm afraid what my neighbor's going to think. What if I build an ark? You know, the neighborhood watch community, they're going to come out and they're going to bust my chops because we're not allowed really to build the boat. Well, who are you supposed to fear? I'm afraid of neighborhood watch. I'm, af- I'm afraid of our, of our uh, you know, whatever, whatever the community that you live in. The rules. Or are you afraid of God? Now, fortunately, good news for everybody here, God's not calling anyone here to build an ark because he's not going to flood the earth again, right? But the point is, if I have a fear of God, meaning I want to care what God thinks more than I want to care what others think. That's the first step on the path of wisdom. It's not the end. You get that your relationship with God grows beyond that. It's the beginning. So we start there and we move forward and we learn about God and we learn that God desires our love. That it begins with fear and it ends with 
us realizing that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. <clears throat> In Psalm 56, 4, it says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. That sounds familiar. Does that sound familiar to you guys? In God I trust. Seems like it's on my money. If I had any, I'd take it out and look. Once upon a time, I bet that was true. No? In God I trust. In God I praise His word, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Submitting my desires, my hopes, who I am, into the hands of God. Not the fear of man. In Psalm 56.11, it says, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? According to the New Testament, the only thing man can do is kill you. Well, that seems like kind of a big deal. Right? At least be honest. That's a big deal to me. But the New Testament teaches us that death is not something to fear anymore because death is a doorway to God. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, face to face with the greatest treasure of all the universe. So the only thing man can do, the worst thing man can do to me is usher me into the presence of my God and Savior. That's nothing to be afraid of. How do these people become those people? How does this Israel become that Israel? How does this United States become like that Israel? How does the work, because the Bible teaches, we're going to see it as we continue working our way through the next couple of chapters of Isaiah. God's got a plan like that Israel for the whole world. Right? That plan for that Israel was all the nations coming to see God and to learn from Him. And there's no more war. And there's no more tears. And there's no more... Man, there's a lot of things, a lot of promises that God says when the earth is in submission to Him. As opposed to how it is today. I heard a lot of tears today. Isn't there a lot of tears today? How about pain? Suffering? What about war? Have we known a day without war? Not in my lifetime. And I'm, I'm not as old as some of you guys, but I'm old. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that that's occurred, but the Bible teaches us that when man learns to submit himself to God, that's where peace is. That's the end of war. That's the promise. But we're here where Israel was, right? How did that Israel become this Israel? That's the whole book of Isaiah. How does that Israel become this one? How do we transform a life? Someone who, who is a broken man of unclean lips. How do we get him from there to there? He's got to see God. Isaiah 6. He's got to see God. You have to see him. Job, when he's going through all the troubles that Job's going through, you know what, what his hope was? 
man, I don't know about all this stuff that's happening to me and why it's all happening, and I don't understand it, and I'm actually a little upset by it all, but I know this, my Redeemer lives. And I'm going to see him with my eyes. That's how that man becomes that one. Faith in him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, the study that we have through the book of Isaiah. So far to go, only 64 more chapters. God, we, uh, we, I just pray, Lord, that you just fill us with the excitement of the learning. There's so much in Isaiah, most quoted book in the entire Bible. So much for us to glean and to comprehend and to understand. And this, this pattern is laid out for us so beautifully in chapters 1 through 5 with the brokenness of man. And chapter 6 with man being made clean. God, just help us see the hope of Isaiah. That yeah, sin's bad. It's not okay. And God's going to purge it. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But God, who is rich in mercy and the love with which he has loved us, he has made a way where there is no way. And that's what moves us from the beginning of wisdom to the love of God. When we have our Isaiah 6 moment. God, I pray you open our eyes, draw us near unto you. Help us reach that place where our desire is not for silver and gold. Our desire is not for power and all these other things that the world's <coughs> desire. Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, It shall not be so among you. You don't want to lord it over one another. What is it that we seek? To know God. To know Him. To see Him. To hear Him. That is the greatest pursuit of mankind. God, give us a hunger for you like that. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.